welcome to the Truth About Cars podcast. My name is Tim Healy. I'm the managing editor for the Truth About Cars. You can find us online at ttac.com or ttac.com. And we are brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a full body of rust. And excuse me, a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need eBay Motors has it, and with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Welcome back to the TTAC Podcast. We are here with Jake Fisher, the Senior Director of Auto Testing from Consumer Reports. Jake, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing all right. So we are here to talk about your best and worst cars. Uh, I would like you to go ahead and start and tell us what you guys found to be the best and the worst of 2023 and why. All right. Well, okay. Well, so first of all, thank you for having me on. Um, you know, at the home office in central Connecticut, uh, we drive a lot of cars. Um, we actually have about 94 different cars at the track right now, and we, um, we own all of them. So, uh, so this last year, we actually bought um, 10 EVs, 10 plug-in uh, hybrid vehicles, 10 uh, hybrids, and eight gas. That's kind of kind of crazy, uh, amazing that that's happening now. That <laughs> it seems like the brand new gas entries are kind of the minority of, of this world. Um, but uh, you know, it's it's interesting. I get to drive kind of all the latest cars, and um, there are some really great ones and some not so much. So walk us through your favorites first. So, okay, favorites. Um, you know, and this is always hard because it's like kind of like, you know, my favorite or, you know, the favorite of what we what we test. And, and, and the reason I say that is because I'm kind of a weirdo. So I'm a kind of a car enthusiast. I, you know, the cars that I own are, you know, Toyota MR2 that turned into a race car, uh, S13 Nissan, which also turned into a drift car. Um, so I'm, I, I kind of like, kind of, I would say the lunatic fringe of cars. Um, you know, fortunately there's a couple of, uh, uh, stick shift vehicles in our fleets too. But when I talk about kind of our, our favorites, consumer reports favorites, I mean, we're testing vehicles really for kind of everyday people, you know, the kind of the majority of people who are looking for safe, reliable, uh, affordable transport for their family. And, you know, the ones that I think we tested this year that really come to the, the top are some of these kind of very practical cars. I mean, Accord Hybrid, the Honda CRV Hybrid. Um, these are vehicles that are just like really easy to drive, very normal to drive, but like incredibly fuel efficient and do things really, really well. Um, the Prius prime is in our fleet right now. Um, here's a vehicle that you could drive, you know, every day completely in electricity. Um, but you don't have to worry about range anxiety because that engine pops on. The other neat thing about the Prius prime is that this generation, you get your full cargo capacity. If anyone who has experienced a Prius prime before, um, that battery kind of took up a lot of the cargo that you had. Um, other really cool cars, uh, BMW iX, um, uh, certainly not a cheap vehicle, but, um, you know, BMW is doing really well with their EVs. Um, they're, they're incredible, incredibly quiet, fast, smooth, developed. Um, 
they're they're really impressive. Um, and actually, the car that I'm driving right now that I really enjoy is the Kia Nero Hybrid. And the Kia Nero is kind of neat one because you we've tested it in the plug-in hybrid, the hybrid, the gasoline one. Um, yeah, well hybrid um and then pure ev so um you know kind of whatever flavor floats your boat in terms of electrification they got it and nobody seems to know what it is people know what priuses are but um the nero is is incredibly efficient and roomy and kind of quiet too so there's some neat neat options out there all right it's interesting you mentioned the nero the reason i i bring that up is i drove the all-electric version in the fall of 2022 and i didn't I liked the car well enough. I didn't dislike it, but nothing about it stood out to me where I would have put it on a best of list. So I'm curious as to why you did uh, beyond what you already just said. Well, I mean, look, it, you know, we, we've got some weird professions here, right? Um, you know, I mean, I hopped out of a BMW iX and got into a Kia Nero, and believe me, the Kia Nero does not stand out compared to the BMW iX. But I could buy three Neros for the price of the iX. So I think what really stood out is the fact that it's around 30 grand. You got a car that gets nearly 50 miles per gallon, that is easy to use. It's got a nice big screen that um, works really easy to do to use. Um, you know, I, I think maybe maybe I think I think you said it really well. Nothing really stands out in a bad way. And today, there are so many vehicles that do stand out in a bad way. Either they're very expensive or they're really difficult to just drive because they've got, you know, these giant screens where you have to go hit three menus to do rudimentary things. Um, Or they're very noisy or they have a bad ride. Um, This is a vehicle that um, is kind of a good choice for people who aren't looking to stand out, but they're looking for something that's, Again, safe, reliable, easy to drive, quiet, um, safe, all those things. Okay, cool. And so then you mentioned uh, we, in, our, in our kind of pre-show setup, you mentioned that your least favorite was the Alfa Romeo Tonali. I have not actually driven that yet, but I have driven the Hornet, uh, both versions of the Hornet. And I was like, I, have a, I don't want to spoil your answer, but I have a feeling I know why you didn't like the Tonali. But let's go ahead and hear from you first. Spoil away, my friend. What, what, what do you think about the Hornet? Okay, so my personal take is that I actually like the GT better. And the reason is I think the internal combustion powertrain is more responsive. Uh, handle. I thought it was lighter, so it seemed to handle and ride a little bit better, or at least handle better. And you can also get most of the same uh, convenience and safety features that you can get on the RT, on the GT, for, for less money. So I, I just... I didn't. I know Dodge was sort of positioning it as a plug-in hybrid, or I don't know if I remember if it was plug-in or not. But they're plugging, excuse me, positioning it as a hybrid uh, performance vehicle, and it just it felt too heavy, ponderous, uh, slow throttle response. I just didn't enjoy the P have as much. And if it was my money on the line, I'd rather buy the GT. Yeah. So you're talking about the plug-in hybrid. So so now imagine the Alfa Romeo, which is only available as the plug-in hybrid and costs more. So mm-hmm. I think, you, you know, the, there you go. Um, I think the answers are clear. And I'll throw in the fact that here we have this SUV that rides horribly. Um, the Tonale, I mean, it's just, it, it, it's so incredibly stiff that it just beats you up. Um, it's cramped inside. Um, and all the things that you said. It's It's got this this high. Again, I, I, I am quite positive about plug-in hybrids in general. Um, when they're kind of implemented well. 
you know, and the, the tonality is just kind of a weird one, right? I mean, there's kind of like this gasoline motor that's operating some mm-hmm. wheels. The, the, the rear, the EV is really only rear wheel drive, you know, and you get into a situation where even, you know, again, if you want to look at it as a sporty vehicle, again, I don't think people are necessarily, you know, driving the majority of their times in the small SUV on a racetrack. But even if you are, you know, you hit the gas and all of a sudden, you know, you're moving from, you know, as you move between gasoline and and EV, you're actually moving from all-wheel drive to rear-wheel drive to front-wheel drive. I mean, it's 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 not even, uh, you know, that's not what you want when you're in a corner. <laughs> you, know, you want something kind of uh, repeatable. But again, I don't think people are going to be racing this thing around. And it's it's a shame that it, you know, gives up so much in terms of just everyday comfort, you know, to get that sporty handling, which I don't think necessarily you have to do. I mean, you look at you know, again, you look at the BMWs of the world or Mercedes Benz or, you know, that are able to handle really well and not beat beat you up so much. Now, that, the Tonali was on your list. But I don't know if you mentioned any other. I, I didn't see anything in the setup there. Any other vehicles that you were disappointed in, let down by, we consider it to be, quote unquote, a worse car. So I'd like to see if there's anything else on your mind of uh, uh, in that in that category. Well, I mean, it all depends on what it is that is the letdown, you know, and, and unfortunately, I mean, for a lot of vehicles, I mean, the letdowns are one, how unbelievably expensive vehicles are these days. You know, I mean, again, in my line of work, I'm driving these cars. Um, you know, I'm not worried, you know, that, um, you know, I could drive the R Lucid. It's, <laughs> you know, I don't have to pay the hundred thousand dollars for it, you know, and, and the truth is, is that so many vehicles are just so unbelievably expensive and the reliability um, is really an issue. So, I mean, let's get past in terms of just the driving enjoyment of it. And look, the Lucid is unbelievably fast, but I mean, for a vehicle that costs that amount um, and and the truth is, is that like our Lucid, for instance, and our our, uh, Rivians, you know, let's put aside kind of what they do and they do a lot of really cool stuff. um, And we've, you know, we all kind of know about all the cool little features that are in some of these EVs. But when they're spending a lot of their life going back and getting serviced and not at your local Rivian or Lucid dealer, but actually on a flatbed out of state, because that's the only place they could do service for us when we're in Connecticut. Um, you know, it, it's it's really, really disappointing. I'd like to know a little bit more. Uh, we'll talk about our best cars and worst cars on the T-Tax side after our, after our mid-show ad break. But I'd like to know a little bit more about what you guys do in terms of reliability. A lot of automotive journalists just don't cover reliability for fairly obvious for reasons I would hope are fairly obvious. But just in case people don't know that, most of us don't have the resources or the staffing to keep a vehicle for a real long time. Some of the, the car magazines, a.k.a. the Buff Books, they'll do long-term testers. When I worked at Consumer Guide Automotive years ago, Consumer Guide used to have long-term testers. I don't believe they do anymore. Uh, there have been some changes there. Uh, I know a few other sites do it, but it's difficult. It's not easy to have a long-term vehicle. The press fleets requires a lot of different work. And in, the, in Consumer Guide's case, or I'm sorry, Consumer Reports case, you buy the vehicles. Cars.com, I believe, buys a vehicle every year or two or a couple of vehicles every year. But it's just not easy. So can you walk us through... Uh, as one of the journalists who actually does get the chance to test a vehicle over long term, can you walk us through your process? Yeah, absolutely. Um, happy to. And, and 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 yeah. So so you know, it, it's really funny when we talk about best and worst. Obviously, I'm talking about reliability because I mean, we do a lot of surveys of consumers, and we say, what's most important to you? 
you know, again, to me, I want a stick shift rear wheel drive car. Um, but that's not what's most important to most people. You know, what they tell us is reliability. Reliability is number one. So that is kind of almost, you know, strangely absent from a lot of reviews about cars. Um, now, the way we do it now, now you're, you're absolutely correct. We purchase all the vehicles that we test. Um, we keep them for an extended amount of time. Uh, but regardless of what happens to our vehicle, um, if it's reliable or not, that has nothing to do with our judgment or reliability. Um, we often actually purchase the very first ones off the, off the factory floor, right? I mean, we're, we, we like to get them early. So we get the testing done. And the truth is, is that, you know, like I mentioned, Lucid, I mentioned Rivian to you. Um, I have no doubt that some of the problems that we're having with those vehicles, um, probably have been remedied on some of the later production. The way we do reliability is from surveys from hundreds of thousands of owners. So when we talk about reliability and that is part of the score, um, when we score a vehicle, reliability is a big chunk of that. Um, we're looking at um, this last year, um, we had well over 300,000 vehicles on our survey. So we're looking at basically what exactly people are telling us happened with those cars. Um, and if we had, you know, one or five or 10 or 20 cars, we're not making judgment. We're looking at hundreds of vehicles of even each model. And we're finding out exactly what goes wrong, what areas they're going wrong, what components are going wrong, what it costs them to repair. And we do an extensive analysis on that. And that's how we predict the reliability of, of, of cars. You know, and I think that's really important because, you know, I mean, I, I just think about, you know, you know, people, you know, like, you know, if our top pick is like a Toyota Corolla, you know, and people will be like, I've driven a Corolla and that's not as nice as this other car. That's not sporty. That's not fun. I'm like, yeah, but the reliability is incredible. So, you know, I think when you think about our recommendations, you have to always think about the fact that we're taking into account things like safety systems, the reliability of it. It's not just the cars that Jake likes to drive. Um, you know, that's a different list. <laughs> Yeah, that, that that makes a lot of sense. It, it, reliability is obviously difficult to measure. I mean, like you said, you have to do it either through talking to consumers, which I, you know JD Power also does. Although there's some controversy there because JD Power, their surveys sometimes people ding a car for reliability when they, what they're really saying is they don't like the infotainment system. So there's been some there's been some discussion on there. But you know, for us, um, for a lot of journalists, it's just hard to because we don't have the chance to have the car long enough, and we're getting you know we're getting into however many cars per year. But reliability is a long-term thing, and unless you can have a car for at least a year, and, and even then, I think a year can be a bit limiting because most consumers are going to own a vehicle much longer than that. Uh, so it, it is difficult to sort of measure. But it, it, that is very interesting that you guys do it via survey, so that there's a large sample size. Can you tell me what the sample size is without giving away too much corporate inside information? <laughs> I'll tell you anything you want. Um, so, 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 like I said, we have about three hundred, well over three hundred thousand vehicles this last year for um, all of the all of the data that we had. Um, you know, and, and I think it's super interesting. I mean, look, I, I'm not going to go and say nasty things about JD Power. I think JD Power does does some really um, good stuff, um, but you know, very often people. Um, confuse the IQS study, the initial quality study for reliability, you know, and, and I, Gavin Drew is like, well, they said this and we said this, you know, again, IQS is the first 90 days quality. Okay. That's, I, I'm not talking about quality, I'm talking about reliability. Mm -hmm. I suppose some people use them interchangeable, but quality is like, you know, 
did I do I like the 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 fabrics? You know, do I like the ride? Do I like um, how this cup holder works? That's the kind of stuff that might be initial quality. We're talking about reliability. So our reliability, we're looking when we're predicting, we're looking back one, two, three years. We're looking at you know higher mileage vehicles. What's going on in those? And we're really talking about things that broke, not about preferences, not about did you like you know again you know, how's the car smell or ride? <laughs> I'm not asking about that. I'm asking specifically about, you know, what actually broke on the car. And we, and, and of course we weight them too. Um, you know, when we talk about reliability, you'll never, you've heard, you know, problems per hundred. We don't talk about problems per hundred. And that's because one problem might be a little piece of trim that's broken. Another problem might be the battery on your EV failed. So we weight them based on severity. And that's, again, how we look at reliability. That makes sense. Uh, one last question on that topic, and then we have to take, our, uh, take a quick ad break. The, I don't know if this data is publicly available outside of what J.D. Power has, but do you look at uh, warranty claims? I'm not, I don't believe that's publicly available to begin with, so I could be completely uh, wrong on this one. But I'm, I was just wondering if there's any, anything you do to look at warranty claims or anything like that as well. Well, I, I will say this, that, um, you know, when it comes to warranty claims, I mean, we do have a dialogue with um, the manufacturers, you know, and they're very interested in what we say about reliability. And very often that the problems that we're hearing from consumers do match what they're seeing in terms of warranty claims. But I will also caution that there are many issues that won't show up in warranty. Um, you know, I mean, you think about issues such as which we all deal with intermittent problems with electronics, for instance, you know, there may not be a warranty claim. There may be where they have to change components or something like that. But, um, you know, if you have a problem that's an ongoing problem that you're unable to get fixed or get resolution for from the manufacturer that will show up on our our survey, but not necessarily as a warranty claim. And we're going to take a quick break from the T-Tech podcast to talk to Matthew Guy about some stuff that he uses in his driveway, just so you know that we don't just review products off Amazon, we actually use them ourselves. So Matthew, you want to talk about battery booster packs today, correct? Yeah, battery booster packs. And a lot of our readers and probably a lot of our listeners are often dragging home some sort of horrible hoopty for a new project or something like that. So battery boosters are pretty big part of my life, at least, and the terrible cars I drag home. So hopefully they are for some of our readers, too. And you're right, Tim, on our you know never-ending quest to improve the truth about cars, both the podcast and the site itself. Um, you know, we do choose to focus on items that we actually use, whether, you know, that's me or one of our other authors um at at the site and tim you use a lot of these things too so it's a lot better than just going on amazon taking the top five and writing the post or talking about them here on the podcast because we can give you some real honest to goodness feedback about them and make some recommendations and if we're giving you truth about cars we might as well give you the truth about car accessories too right <laughs> right and i actually don't use battery booster packs very often so i'm going to defer to you on this one and just want you to give us a few minutes here. We have about four minutes or so, four and a half minutes to, to kind of go over the pros and cons of the best and worst that you've used in recent years. Absolutely. So there were there are two that spring immediately to mind. One is a larger, um, almost what you would think of immediately when you think of a battery pack. It's about 
about half the size of an actual lead acid battery. It is as heavy as lead. It's about 20 pounds um, with two big positive and negative terminals on it. Um, and that one is from a brand, uh, for example, you can find it with the Stanley brand, um, has them as rated for about 1,000 peak amps and 500 crank assist amps. So, I mean, that thing, I find it's good for about three successful starting attempts um, before even needing a recharge even after I've had mine for about 10 years. So even with that amount of abuse, it still starts something up pretty much the first time, unless it's really good and dead if it's a big diesel. Um, but one of the, if you take nothing else away from this segment of the podcast, it should be that old school battery packs of that sort. They show up in two types. Okay. There's one that turns on via a dedicated on off switch. That's right there on the battery pack. And another that, quote-unquote, wakes up when you hook the positive and negative terminals onto the battery. Now, that assumes there is a trickle of charge left in the battery to which it is connected. And my experience, most of what I'm boosting has batteries that are flatter than Kansas. So I always look for one that has a dedicated on-off switch, especially with those old-school ones that weigh about 20 pounds. And you can find a lot of them that do have an on-off switch, so... Just make sure it has that to activate the leads, and I think you'll be a lot happier with your purchase for sure. And good to know. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it's not something I knew when I bought my first battery pack 10 years ago. I was trying to boost. I think it was. It, it was. It was an old Chrysler LHS. Remember those? <laughs> I do. I do. <laughs> right? And it was, I had whatever, 3.3 or 3.5 or whatever they had back then, and no, sir, wouldn't jump anything. And that was why. So um, one need with new technology, with lithium ion and things like that, one needn't lug around one of those big, heavy battery, battery packs anymore. Um, there are so many out there at all um, that are not much bigger than a couple of packs of smokes, really, stacked on top of each other. And um, I've used these. There's one from a booster company. There's a booster from a company called NOCO, N-O-C-O. And oh, I've used... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've used precisely this same unit. Um, it also built out a thousand amps. It doesn't last three times. You need to recharge it every time. But I did find that it worked reliably each time I put the leads onto the dead car. And again, with the same sort of thing in mind for usability, look for a button called polarity override on these. It's not labeled on off, um, but look for one called polarity override. Usually it's got an exclamation point on it. And what that does is it permits you to manually wake this thing up. It allows you to manually turn it on. Um, it works as a true on off switch, even if it's not that, even if that's not its intended function, it does work that way. So look, if you're looking at one of those little lithium ion ones that aren't too big, they'll fit in your glove box, they'll fit in your center console, spare tire well, whatever. Just look for one that's got the polarity override button on it. And you'll find yourself having a much better experience and cursing at the car that you're trying to wake from the dead instead of the battery <laughs> pack that you're trying to use to help yourself. Uh, that actually sounds like a band name, that Polarity. Was, would you say it was called Polarity Plus? <laughs> yeah, Polarity Plus. Polarity Override is marked on Polarity this. Override. <laughs> that, that's it. That's a, that's a metal, metal band name. But anyway, we've got about a minute left. Anything else you'd like to add on, on battery packs? I mean... Just look for some. There's one for that for all the world looks like a flashlight that one would find in your household junk drawer. And I've used it. It was from a brand called Shashi. And it, um, S 
C-O-S-C-H-E. And it starts all kinds of items, wayward vehicles, tractor. And I mean, I never thought it would work like that at all. It just doesn't look robust enough, but it's pretty good. So I'm shocked by its capability in such a small package. Excellent. Great, great to hear. Um, uh, good to hear your thoughts on battery booster packs. So we are going to close this out and get back to the regular podcast. Matthew, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me on. eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. We are brought to you by eBay Motors. And we're going to talk a little bit, just for the next minute or two here, about um, a car that you love. So, Jake, can you tell me, walk me through uh, a car that you had in the past or that you still have now that you loved? <laughs> uh, well, let's see. Well, my, my, my strange uh, uh, vehicles? Um, let's see. I guess my first vehicle was a Porsche 914 that I got when I was 13 years old for a hundred bucks that did not run, which I spent a last the, the, for many years rebuilding it. So I've always loved that vehicle and I always loved min engined um, sports cars. Um, but in college, I wound up getting a Toyota MR2, first generation, you know, the little wedge one. Mm-hmm. I remember um, those. Yeah, so I had that for many years. And when I actually started, um, Working consumer reports, I turned it into a full-out race car. So gutted the interior cage. Um, I did SCCA um, touring uh, racing for years, and um, that car was just awesome, <laughs> just absolutely awesome. So that was that's probably one of my favorite cars of all time. Excellent. And I, I talked last week about my Fox Body Mustang, which was the vehicle that I love, but, um, you know, the other one I had, so I've only owned four cars in my life. Everything else has been press cars or I've been in the city where I didn't need a car. And mm-hmm. the, my Honda Accord was, uh, I didn't love it for, for being fun to drive, although it was relatively fun to drive for a, a for a two door. It was a two door. It was, it was a two door Accord coupe. Um, uh, 1997 it was. So I bought it mm-hmm. used in Osa. I bought it used in 2005. I had it for about five years. And I uh, I found it to be sort of fun to drive, but really what it was was a good commuter car. It was just fuel efficient, uh, kind of um, fun enough to drive to keep you from being bored. Uh, mm-hmm. So that was always good and reliable, uh, definitely a very reliable vehicle. And then good for road trips. The only thing I didn't like about that car is when I stopped driving it on a regular basis so that I could uh, – so that I could get to the uh, get in press cars more often, I found that um, Hondas don't like to sit, so that was kind of rough. It was uh, once I started driving test cars on a regular basis and not being in my cord very often, it started breaking. <laughs> so I, Hondas need to drive, need to be driven, or at least older ones do. If you keep them, if you keep them maintained and keep driving them, they will last quite some time. So with that being said, we are going to come back to our best and worst cars. We, we had Jake walk us through how Consumer Reports does it. Now it's our turn, and we're going to talk about a little bit about how TTAC does it in our best and worst of 2023. And it's a little bit different in terms of, well, first of all, we are not we don't have the, the test track that Consumer Reports has. We don't have, we don't buy our own cars. We, we do, unfortunately or fortunately, rely on manufacturer loans, which is, a bit of an ethical, you know, there's a lot of ethical issues we have to kind of navigate, but um, 
also we have a team that's all remote. So we have people pulling from different press fleets, living in different areas, different roads, different weather conditions. We have three or four freelancers and myself who are in test cars on a regular basis. And so what we're, what we, what we did is I asked those people as well as myself to come up with three 2023 or 2024 model year vehicles that they drove, that they drove during the calendar year, 2023 we were also willing to make exceptions for 2022s that hadn't changed, or even a 2021 that hadn't changed. Uh, you know, if it was if it was the same vehicle and they drove it in 23, because there are sometimes, especially in this post-COVID world, there are sometimes vehicles that are a model year or two behind in our press fleets. Just for whatever reason, they just didn't get out of the cycle out of the fleet that quickly. So we uh, we kind of rolled through and talked about it and came up with our lists, and it was very different for all of us except for one thing. The Toyota BZ4X was almost unanimously on the worst list. So I don't know what Jake, what your experiences are with that vehicle. Well, you know, it, it's funny. Um, you know, I mean, if you look at the specs of it, right? Um, you know, it's kind of disappointing. You know, it doesn't quite have the range. It's it doesn't you know drive nearly as nice as like a uh, a Tesla. But again, you know. One thing we're finding with a lot of EVs, we see a lot of reliability issues with them. And to a normal consumer, you know what? The fact that the reliability from that Toyota's BZ4X is likely going to be a whole lot better than something you get from, you know, Fisker um, is important. So, I mean, I think if you look at it that way, you might come to a different conclusion. Interesting. And then the to stake with Toyota a little bit, excuse me, to stay with Toyota just a little bit, um, we don't want to pick on them too much because... Some of their vehicles are really good, and two of my freelancers, I've actually not driven the vehicle yet except for one brief hot lap at Road America last spring. I've not driven the car on alone. The The Toyota GR Corolla made the list for two of my freelancers. So obviously that car has been impressing some people. You know, again, it, it, it's what it's what lens you're looking at this vehicle for, through. I've driven the 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 the, uh, the 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 GR Corolla as well, and it's awesome around our our track. We have a handling track; it's amazing. Um, everyday driving to work and back may not be the best tool for the job. Uh, that would be that was that was my basic assessment after after one lap at Road America. Now that being said, talking about daily driving and back, there are also vehicles that mix the enthusiast side. In the daily driving side. So one of my one of my top picks for last year was the Acura Integra. Not the type it was uh, actually the Type S, but I also really enjoyed the A spec. Both are manual transmission cars. Both are really fun to drive, and both are luxurious enough and docile enough when driven gently that you could easily drive those to the office every day if you were still commuting to work. I got something to say on this. <laughs> <laughs> so, Go for it. Go for it. Well, you know the funny thing is, is that you know. We when we purchase vehicles and we test them, we try to test them how most people are going to buy them. And, you know, it, it, it's funny with the, the Integra, because I agree the um, you know, one thing that Honda does incredibly is stick shifts, clutches, just they make the cars, you know, just an absolute joy to drive. Um, but we tested ours out of automatic because the vast majority of people who are buying that car buy them as automatics. And that kind of takes the, the life out of that car. It becomes basically kind of a, a pricey um, Civic at that point. Okay, that's interesting. I have not driven the automatic transmission version yet. I had an A-Spec for a loaner last spring, and then I drove the Type S at at an event. It was just a 10-minute loop. Uh, 
here in the Chicago suburbs. So it was uh, public roads. Didn't get to drive it super hard because it was in the middle of the day and a lot of traffic. But um, it was it was enjoyable. But I, I haven't had it for a long term loan or not a long term loan, but a week long loan yet. So I'd be interested to see how that how the Type S is over the course of a week, and I'd also be interested to drive the automatic. Uh, uh, we also have had a couple electric vehicles that got some mention. I drove the Prius for the first time last uh, in September. Enjoyed it immensely. I drove it to Detroit and back for the for the, the last warm weather edition of the Detroit Auto Show. It was uh, it did not make my top three, but it was an honorable mention. And I also drove uh, the Ioniq Six twice last year. I drove uh, for a quick loop in New Mexico from Santa Fe up to Los Alamos and back. Not Los Alamos, uh, or was it Los Alamos? Wherever Oppenheimer did his thing. So I think it was Los Alamos. I drove up there and back. Uh, quick, It was about an hour round trip. And then I also had one for a week a few months later here here at home. And the Ioniq 6, it, it's a cool-looking vehicle, really comfortable, rode well on the freeway, had a little bit of sport to it. Of course, it has the instant torque that all EVs pretty much have. And then the biggest thing to me was the range. The range was really nice. It was, I think it was close to 300 miles. And I, that was the first time in a long time I've driven an EV and, and really didn't have a lot of worry about charging. Because as you know, Jake, charging infrastructure is often not very good. I live in a high-rise condo, so I don't have my own charger. There is a charge point about 10-minute walk away that generally has been reliable, knock on wood. But um, that's where I usually charge EVs when I, when I need to. But uh, it was nice with the Ionic 6, and I almost didn't need to charge it. I, I, the only reason I had to is I had two longer road trips to the suburbs while I was in possession of the car, and I did put enough miles on it that I needed to charge a little bit before sending it back. But the range there was great. And I, I before I keep rambling on too much, I want to see what you guys at Consumer Reports had in terms of experience with the uh, Ionic 6. Yeah, well, I actually I'm a big fan of the Ionic 6. Um, you know, I, I actually considered kind of throwing it on my list for you guys. Um, other than the fact that I like the Ionic 5 better because it's kind of the same Why car with more room. Okay, um, more room. It makes sense. It, and we actually do our own range tests. And despite the EPA estimates, which show the Ionic 6 more, we actually got more range out of our Ionic 5. So, um, so, so I, I think that's kind of. Um, you know, the Ionic six is kind of like an Ionic five, which is less room and in, in, inside, but, but, but really impressive. But, but, you know, the thing about the charging infrastructure, you know, and this is where it gets real tough. I mean, if I take that Ionic six or the Ionic five that mat, for that matter, and kind of put it up against the Tesla model three or Tesla model Y, I mean, the, the, the Hyundai seem just more developed. I mean, they ride better, they're quieter. Um, you know, they're certainly easier to live with because not everything is through one screen. You know, I think about the Teslas as almost like the the Chromebook of of cars. Right. You know, I mean, it's just kind of like just what you need to go. Um, but um, I think for shopping holistically, you're still better off with a Tesla these days just because the Tesla infrastructure just is far superior than anything else. I mean, you don't have to you know, mess around with, you know, different accounts for every charging uh, network and they tend to work and they tend to work at the speeds that they're promised. So, um, so we're still kind of recommending people, you know, just go get a Tesla because you could actually charge it if you want to take a trip. Um, you're, you know, kind of, maybe you're okay with something else, but you never really know. The other thing is, is when you look at the entire EV 
you know, it seems like the whole fleet of EVs are going to be switching over to the Tesla connector. It's kind of a weird time right now to go buy an EV when next year you're going to, the whole world's going to be different, you know, wait till, mm-hmm. wait till you get the lightning connector or whatever in your phone, don't get the 30 pin. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I know, I know exactly what you mean as an iPhone owner. The, the switch to USB-C was frustrating. Um, right. So so comparing our lists of best cars, we'll talk about worst ones in just a moment. Uh, always fun to go out talking about the worst, right? Save the best <laughs> for last. Not this time. But um, looking at your list and comparing it to ours, there are a couple of cars that are also I'm also seeing. We did some. We allowed honorable mention. So if somebody had, you know, we said pick three, but if somebody had five or six cars in mind, they could add honorable mentions. The Honda CRV. One of my writers also included it, just like you did. And then uh, the the Prius, I had mentioned it a few minutes ago. Another one of our writers also uh, had mentioned the Prius. So obviously the new Prius is definitely getting some attention. I think mainly because for the first time in perhaps forever, the Prius is interesting to drive, but it doesn't sacrifice what it's known for, which is uh, high MPG. And it's also a little more comfortable. I, I you know, for a long road trip, I, I thought it was just fine going. Other than some road noise at highway speeds, um, I thought it was great for for going back and forth to Detroit. So that those two vehicles kind of st- stood out as as crossovers. I didn't I didn't uh, spend a lot of time with the uh, with the Accord Hybrid, which is also on your list, but I did drive it at an event and. As much as I miss the manual transmission four-cylinder sport, the Accord Hybrid, it was very comfortable to drive. It, it drove well. Uh, it was sporty, which Accords generally are. And if I had to buy a sedan today and, and, could, and could live without a manual transmission, the Accord Hybrid would also be on my shopping list as well. Yeah, you know, you know, it's interesting when you're. I was listening to your your rules and and bylaws and and like going back to to other years that haven't changed. I mean, the the other car that I will throw into the mix that hasn't been mentioned right now, and I know it's not brand new for this year, is the Maverick, the Maverick Hybrid. Yeah, um, Maverick's really good. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you ask the question like, what would I actually buy if I had to go buy a car and I didn't have this fleet of vehicles? Mm-hmm. Um, I honestly think I would probably buy a Maverick hybrid. It's just like, it's such a refreshing form factor for a vehicle. You know, I mean, it's roomy or, you know, get, you know, 37 miles per gallon. Um, it's quiet. You could take a trip in it. I could throw, you know, five uh, mountain bikes in the bed or, or my, my gear, my snowboards. I mean, just for who I am right now and what I do with a vehicle, it's just such a amazing Swiss army knife of a vehicle. Um, and it's 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 a shame that we don't see that type of a vehicle from anybody else. I know there's this Hyundai Santa Cruz, but but come on, it's like the bed's tiny. It's just it it it, it doesn't really look like a truck either. Um, they didn't right. mark. Um, and and then if you look at, I mean, again, Rivian. Like I, I took I took a family vacation with the Rivian because you know it's got that neat neat, neat gear tunnel and whatnot. You know, I measured it. The bed length in the Rivian is shorter. Than the Maverick, and the Maverick is this small, light, efficient uh, vehicle. So, I mean, it's it's just such a smart vehicle. Yeah, it, it really is. I had a Maverick, uh, a Tremor over the summer, and they're they're, they're good vehicles. Whether they're the hybrid or the internal combustion engine. Uh, okay, so let's talk about worst cars for just a second before we um, before we wrap it up. So, looking at our list of worst cars, obviously we talked about the Toyota. 
and the, the BZ4X seem to be consensus. One thing I noticed going through our list and rereading it, prepping for this for this episode, is a lot of cars aren't bad, per se. Not like they were in the 80s and 90s when I was growing up. But a lot of cars are bad for the money. They're bad compared to the competition. Yeah. They're, so, like, for example, I picked the Jeep Grand Cherokee Trailhawk 4xE as one of my worst cars. I mean, people are like, well, it's a nice car. It's a Grand Cherokee. The Grand Cherokee itself is great. I love the Grand Cherokee. The 4xE, I think, is, has some really clunky hybrid transitions, and it's super expensive. And it's also the only way to get a Trailhawk now. And I just think, I don't know. I just think if they can smooth out the hybrid transitions and bring the MSRP down a little bit, it wouldn't be on the list. But that's one of those examples of a vehicle that, in a vacuum, it's not bad. But it becomes a little bit rough when you're not getting what you pay for. And then uh, another one that popped up we talked about earlier is the Dodge Hornet RT. One of my writers had some of the same complaints that you did. Uh, but you also mentioned the cabin, the cabin being cramped and yeah. that it, it costs, it's expensive. He, now, this writer actually enjoyed the driving dynamics. He liked it better than I did, but uh, but he definitely felt that it was way too cramped and and, and also just just too expensive. You know, I mean, it, it's almost worth talking about, you know, plug-in hybrids and Stellantis just for a second, because I, I'm, I'm a little bit afraid that they're kind of giving plug-in hybrids kind of a bad name. Because they're, it's this new, I mean, it's it's kind of the newest segment of powertrains, and it's got a lot of promise. But it seems like Stellantis seems a little bit focused on kind of extracting all of the rebates, you know, that uh, all the tax incentives, as opposed to actually building a vehicle that people really want to use in that way. I mean, you look at the, the Prius Prime, where you could truly use this as an electric vehicle for almost your entire time. Um you look at a lot of the Stellantis vehicles, they are expensive. They are often eligible for those tax rebates. Um, but there is data out there that a lot of them aren't even plugging them in. They're just getting those tax rebates because it's cheaper or the only way to buy the vehicle they want. Um, and that's not necessarily uh, the best use of those batteries. I was actually going to ask you if you have data on how many people plug them in. I also suspect some folks don't know they can plug them in because Unlike a, unlike a traditional battery electric vehicle, we know that a plug-in hybrid, if you run out of range, you still have plenty of gas to work with. So right. folks might not know that they have to plug it, or that they don't have to, but folks might not know, they might not know they can plug it. They may it. not know the benefits yeah. of doing so. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, again, if you look at the Prius and the Prius Prime or the RAV4 and the RAV Prime, people are going out of their way and they're saying, okay, I want to get this for these reasons. You look again, the, my, my, my pick, Alfa Romeo, you know, you didn't go and said, I want to get the plug-in version because here's how I want to use it. You just want to get a tonality. I don't know who wants to get a tonality. Well, apparently some people do. And it comes that way, you know, to your point about the Trailhawk. If that's the only way it comes, I want to get the Trailhawk. I wound up with this plug. Do I need to use it? I guess I don't need to. So so I think it's more likely those types of vehicles are not going to be utilized. Um, and they're just basically going to be carrying around more lithium-ion battery, which doesn't do anybody any good. I will say for the plug-in hybrid, where I live, charging a battery electric vehicle would be difficult for my particular building and situation. Like I said a few minutes ago, I don't have a fast charger in my garage. There's some talk about having one put in, but there's a lot of cars. There's a communal garage. There's a lot of cars in that garage. Even if there were chargers, there'd only be three or four. People would be fighting over them. Uh, so a plug-in hybrid for, for a person like me would be great because – 
you can plug in at a charger, get a little bit of range. If I don't commute to work, I work from home, but if I did commute, I could charge at work. Uh, but I would also have to not worry about range anxiety and not worry about, oh, I forgot to charge or, oh, I'm home and I really can't charge and I have to be somewhere. I don't have time for it to charge on the slow outlet. So you have that flexibility. And so I think that's where plug-in hybrids really, really, just in general, putting aside best or worst cars of last year, I think that's where plug-in hybrids really have the advantage. But as we just as we just discussed, a lot of people don't real, don't understand uh, what they can. They don't have to. Um, let me rephrase that. People don't understand that they can charge if they want to. They can use gas. And I bet you a lot of people just aren't plugging in. Uh, like you said, either because they don't want to or they don't know they can. They're, they're super confusing, honestly. And, and I think a lot of people don't really understand what they're doing, what the benefits are. Um, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're currently testing about a dozen of them right now. Um, I'll, I'll give you some kind of a, you know, actually next month we're going to be releasing a lot of information on plug-in hybrids um, uh, to let you know a little, little secret. But, um, you, you know, I think there's a huge opportunity for understanding this. And again, to, you know, looking at your situation, you know, and, and you're exactly right. It would be very tough to have an EV. But the other thing about a plug-in hybrid, because the batteries are so much smaller, you don't need a level two charger. You know, for most plug-in hybrids, you could plug it in 110 overnight and you're going to fill that that smaller battery without a problem. So, again, it's like less investment. I, I put a level two charger in my home and I got an old home. So I was out over $3,000 once I upgraded the wiring and the box and all that stuff. Um, with a plug-in hybrid, didn't really need to do that. And if your commute is, you know, 40 miles a day between charges or less, it's kind of all you need. And you mm-hmm. never have to deal with range anxiety. You never have to deal with, you know, Electrify America or, or EVgo or any of that stuff. Because those occasional trips, you're, you're, you're fine. And, and one other... Um... One other note before we wrap today's episode is is this. I was just thinking about how cold it is here in Chicago, and I know you're in Connecticut, and I don't know if it's quite as cold there. My dad is actually from Connecticut, and he always tells me that the winters there were, were a little more mild than here, but still definitely cold and snowy. Um, with a plug-in hybrid, you you don't have to worry quite as much about battery degradation in extreme cold or extreme heat. Because, again, if you lose that range, you can at least switch to gas. I'll tell you two anecdotes. One is I went out to Boston and back. My my kid was doing a race out there, and I took our Lucid, which has a EPA-rated range of nearly 400 miles. It's only 100 miles for me to Boston. And it was very cold that day, and I couldn't make it back without recharging um, because it could be a huge degradation on the cold weather. Um, while over my, uh, kind of the Christmas break, I took my family up to Quebec. I live in Connecticut and I took our plug-in hybrid, uh, Hyundai Tucson and no concerns. I had to fill up the tank a few times. Um, but my, I actually wanted to take an EV, but my family is kind of had it with me with our EV trips because, you know, again, you go to that charger and it's not working and then I try another charger, our, our, Five hour trips have sometimes turned into twelve. Yeah, that's that's a, that's the trick about charging. It's you just never really know. It's unpredictable, um, yeah. especially when the weather is not cooperative. So, with that, Jake, we appreciate your time. We're going to wrap up this episode, and and uh, and again, just kind of appreciate your time. 
Thanks for talking to us about your best and worst cars of 2023. Uh, we appreciate how Consumer Reports does their job. It's a little bit different than how most automotive journalists work. We just, you guys have a test track. <laughs> we don't, unfortunately. So that's that's great to hear. And again, the, the Truth About Cars podcast, we are brought to you by eBay Motors, who is here for the ride with over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die. You can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits. LED headlights, roof rack, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride alive. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Jake, thanks again for your time. This is the Truth About Cars podcast. Jake is Jake Fisher from Consumer Reports. He is the senior director for senior director for automotive testing. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. Thank you. And I'm Tim Healy. I'm the managing editor for the TruthAboutCars.com. You can find us at the TruthAboutCars spelled out.com or TTAC.com. And again, keep listening to our podcast. We will be back next week, every week from now on. So again, uh, thank you, Jake, for your time, and we will be moving on. Have a good weekend, everybody.